Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with Megan Mobbs. Megan is a former U.S. Army captain and veteran of the war in Afghanistan. After graduating from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, she served in the Quartermaster Corps, where she specialized in aerial delivery and led a platoon of parachute riggers at Fort Bragg, home of the Airborne. Today, Megan is a doctoral student in the clinical psychology program at Columbia University Teachers College and serves as a clinician in training while pursuing her PhD. One, war isn't inherently damaging, that there can actually be some massive positive impacts of war. But what really seems to cause people the most struggle is a transition off of active duty and back into civilian life. And so that area, this idea that that transition itself is creating the distress that we're seeing in the veteran space is where I began to focus myself. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Hey, how's it going? Surviving. I'm, uh, I'm, I'll put my hair back as well so I don't <laughs> rustle the mic. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we had to, um, who was it? Avi was like, is this the podcast? And we said, yeah, it's the podcast. So we just record and then chop it up to make whatever like natural intro we can. So there's no like, uh, you know, thanks for being on with us that, well, not every time. We probably won't hit on the stuff from the Capitol yesterday because we, uh, we can, we can only be more wrong about it and discussing it a day later and then airing the episode weeks later. So totally agree. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. First and um, are always wrong, right? Yeah, exactly. You're joining us from Texas, right? That's right. We're stationed out of Fort Hood. So I'm in Harker Heights, Texas, which is like a little area outside of it. Hood is like south of Dallas or something? South of Dallas, north of Austin, almost like smack dab in the middle. Okay, cool. And your husband is still active duty? He is, yeah. He is over in 3CR, which is where all of the craziness has happened and where the Vanessa Guillen murder happened. So the whole report that just came out recently, it's like 118 pages, is from his unit. Oh, wow. Uh, does he, he doesn't command the unit, does he? No, no. He, he's a, an XO. He's a major over there. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm not very well read up on that either. But uh, I just saw the um, murder in the news and uh, pretty sad just looking from the outside. Oh, gosh, of course. And then, I mean, 118 pages. I mean, there was 14 people that were relieved. Um, and it's basically a litany of all the mistakes that were made from the top down. I mean, there are no heroes or there were no heroes that emerged in that report. Mm. But, yeah, it's obviously a tragedy all around. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just deciding whether to talk about that, too, or not. But uh we can, oh, that uh, is like we a loaded, I will tell you, that's a very loaded topic, especially one of the topics that I'm like super heated about is there was a, a sergeant major that was relieved. The core sergeant major was recently relieved for talking to other senior NCOs. Reports are kind of saying that it was because he called some of them fat. It had nothing to do with race or gender, or ethnicity. There wasn't even vulgarity used. It sounds like he didn't even curse at all. But the spokesperson from, I want to say, the even may have been just from the Department of the Army, said that he used direct talk that is typically used in infantry units, but is unexpected or kind of disqualifying for a core sergeant major. So that's like the other hullabaloo at Fort Hood right now is this guy. He's, I mean, he served in all infantry units. I think he came from Ranger Regiment. He was in the 82nd. Um, and then it was here. It was relieved because he called some senior NCOs fat. Also a hot should, topic. Should they go back in time and fire every enlisted leader I ever had or instructor? It's 
looks, it's what I need to look like. And I feel like if we are beginning to label things like that as direct talk and it's somehow bad, that means that indirect talk is good and that we can't handle words. And I think that's problematic from a national security perspective, from a psychological perspective. Um, I think there's a lot of consequences we just haven't anticipated of this idea that if you weaponize words or you call it, have some words that are, you know, you can use and some words you can't, obviously, notwithstanding anything related to race or gender or things like that. Um, right. And I, I think we're really opening ourselves up to some pretty disastrous results. Yeah, I think I share some of those beliefs. But wait, this is included with like the investigation of a female soldier who's like abducted and murdered? This is after the fact. Yeah. Forehead is a gift that keeps on giving right now, to be honest. Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we're here to talk about your life and career and transition and work, too. I saw that you come from a military family. Your father was in Vietnam, and he actually was very senior in the military. But your mom was also in the military, mm-hmm. and both of your both of your parents are airborne paratroopers. That's correct. Yeah. What's it What's it like growing up with that uh, duo? So my parents are fourteen years apart, and I didn't kind of realize what that meant in terms of my dad's position. I was born when my dad was a full board colonel, I, and I thought that was kind of normal. And when I was in early middle school, he commanded the 82nd. Again, I had no context of what that meant or how like important that could potentially be. And until it was All-American Week, the first All-American Week, we were there at Fort Bragg. And part of those kind of things that's celebrating the division and the history. And one of them is, is running down this long street. It's actually called Long Street at Fort Bragg. And obviously, the division commander runs in front of the entire division. And like, he's running down the street, I'm sitting with my mom and like holding signs and everybody's cheering. I'm like, oh my God, why is my dad in the front? He's old and there's all these people behind him. And that was kind of the first time I realized like, oh, actually what he's doing is like this really big kind of big thing. Um, So prior to that, I just didn't have any context. Uh, And then I will be honest, when I showed up at West Point, I, again, kind of little context of what the real army was like. And so that had kind of some of its own implications But really kind of the big hero was my mom. She was one of the first women to go to airborne school. She was always this kind of like ceiling shatterer. And she gave up her career to be stay at home as my dad's career kind of took off even more. So I I grew up almost hearing more about her service and less about my dad's until I was a bit older. And there were things like we'd be cleaning, cleaning out steamer trunks in the garage and his metal for valor citations were in there and something he had never shared with us. We didn't find them until we were in high school. Oh, wow. So what, division commander's like two-star general? Mm-hmm. And your mom, what did she do? So she was an AG officer, but she was actually stationed in the 18th Airborne Corps. They met at Fort Bragg. She deployed to Grenada. She was the only woman to go there. And then, again, like you said before, was a paratrooper. And she also went to Canadian Airborne School. We uh, <laughs> we had a Canadian guy on last episode. so Oh, okay. Great time. Not been to uh, Canadian Airborne School. No, no. We, well, nowadays they just do like a... You don't go to the actual school. You just jump with a foreign jump master, and then they give you uh, the other country's wings. Right, which is not the way it used to be. You used to have to jump their parachutes and jump their aircraft and have the jump master be that foreign service, and not anymore. They waived all that. So your mother was in... AG. So she was an adjutant AG. general. Mm-hmm. So oh, she okay. was the yeah, That's personnel. Not, uh... Oh, okay. Adjutant general. That's not... I'm like the worst military person. I thought you were talking about being uh, like a lawyer. Oh, no. No. No worries. That's JAG. That's JAG, yeah. Okay. So it's JAG without the J. So AG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. People, okay. like literally yeah, managing people. Okay. Like HR. And uh, do you have brothers and sisters? 
I do. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Military as well? Uh, my older brother is not. He work, uh, worked in Department of Energy, has kind of done government stuff, and then is like a consultant now. And then my younger brother is also a West Point graduate, and he is an active duty infantry captain out of Fort Riley, Kansas. Oh, cool. So growing up at home with two parents in the military, you said that your father didn't talk about a lot of stuff until maybe later on, or, or you were surprised by the day that you saw him leading the whole division down Long Street, and then your your mother decided to exit early and uh, mm-hmm. and focus on family. What kinds of things do you, did you take from them either directly or like osmotically as you were growing up and kind of like developed mm-hmm. your plan to either go to West Point or your desire to serve? Gosh, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I think the ideas of service and kind of commitment to country, dedication to patriotic values, those were things that were just always kind of omnipotent throughout the home. They were just always present. And, you know, we would always, my mom was, you know, during the Gulf War, like hung a big yellow ribbon outside. And it was one of the, we lived on post. We never lived off post. We were kind of always enmeshed in the military community. And it was almost to the point when my dad retired. I was like a junior, senior in high school. Uh, I had lived my whole life on military installations. And so I really didn't know any different. And so there were all of these kind of intrinsic values that you imagine might occur with living completely embedded in military context. Again, the idea that, you know, you serve something greater than yourself, you always give back to the community, you show up for those that need to be shown up for. And we, you know, I grew up, even though like, I didn't really know these things about my dad, all around our house where, I mean, our house was like covered in military prints or decorations. And so very early on, I also developed a really deep love of military history. And those were kind of all the books all over our house. You know, bookcases stuffed everywhere with military history books or books on leadership or like on the founding of our country. So I grew up just very kind of steeped in the idea that one, America was this, this incredible place and that serving it and serving its people was the highest honor that you could have. And that also looked like many different things, that giving up your career like my mom did in order to serve a family, to support my dad's career was also its own form of service. And so the kids in the household, I know military families move a ton. So did you develop some kind of resiliency or did it help that you were sharing that with your siblings moving around? Yeah. So my older brother and I are 19 months apart. My younger brother is four years younger than I am. And so my dad retired by the time my little brother, he was a little bit younger. So he didn't necessarily move around as much as my older brother and I did during our formative years. And my older brother and I were very, very close. It was kind of like having your built-in best friend, especially when you're 19 months apart. But the army also, the military in general, has a funny way of like circling you back to people that you've previously been stationed with. And so I, we would often end up at a duty station with people that we had served with before. So it was always kind of falling into old friends. But I, I think military children, broadly speaking, are extraordinarily resilient. I do think moving around can teach some of those skill sets. I think it teaches, in some ways, abilities to kind of um, introduce yourself to people, make friends, that whole notion of bloom where you're planted, I think, can build there. And it's challenging for people. Like it was much more challenging for my brother to move around a lot than it was for me. And some of that is just simply personality driven. And this is all before Facebook. So you had to like run into someone that you already knew by chance or or keep their phone number written down. Right. Or call on the phone, you know, hi, Mrs. So-and-so, this is Megan. I'm calling to see if they come out and play. Yeah. Facebook didn't come around until I think I was freshman or sophomore in college. How do you deal with your own kids going through the same thing? I mean, because you can you can relate to them, right? Yeah. 
Oh, gosh, that again, a really a great question. And it really gets to the heart of what it's like to, to juggle all of it. Because again, it was really easy for me to move. I loved it. I loved moving to new places. My older brother didn't. And I'm seeing almost the same reflection in my children. So I have two girls, eight and seven. And my eight-year-old has a more difficult time moving than my seven-year-old. She's much more apt to be like, I just want to go back to our previous duty station. Or I miss those friends. I miss that school. And it's a little bit more challenging for her to adapt to a new place versus my younger who, you know, she, she wants to see her old friends, but she's also very excited to kind of get to a new place. So mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, I feel more of a pull to put down roots. And I think some of that is just by virtue of I grew up in the military, then I was in the military, and now I'm an army wife. And I'm a little bit tired of also getting kind of shuffled all over the place. Um, so I, I actually feel more in line with this idea of, oh, at some point I want to just settle down and build a community. Um, because even though you have that in the military, it's still not quite the same thing as someone who's like grown up in the same town their whole life or moves back there and has that community with them. I want to talk about the juggling through school and those stages after transition, but I guess we'll wait until we get there in the narrative. But yeah, um, yeah. so you, you go to West Point I think you major in comparative politics. Right. And uh, you remember the cheerleading squad. Yes. That's, and I was, yes, I was a cheerleader there all four years. I think when people see West Point cheerleaders, West Point has cheerleaders. And, and I'm like, why not? Well, so actually rabble rousers. So, you know, the um, yell leaders out of A&M, the rabble rousers is what we call cheerleaders at West Point. They have a really long historical tradition. Obviously, they were all male at some point. But I mean, I can't tell you how many times at away games, people will come up to us and ask if we had been bussed in or if we were like a part of some you know, sister or affiliate school to West Point. Um, so there still is that notion as recently as I was there of like, girls can't be cheerleaders or West Point can't have a cheerleading team, um, which is which is, yeah, I think it's an interesting paradox. Yeah, we were originally scheduled to talk like right after the Army Navy game, uh, but we mixed up the schedule a little bit. So Army won. Mm-hmm. Which, as an enlisted person, you already know what I'm going to say. You don't care. It was uh, it was like uh, 15 to nothing, which is a strange score for football. But it was, I guess, the weather was pretty bad, and uh, yeah, it was really foggy. Yeah. It was really yeah. foggy there. Yeah, and they they never pass much anyway. Well, no, because they, yeah, they they run the ball, they run the triple option. Uh, so no, they're they're not as a, a team to pass very much. So less concern when it's foggy. But I, I for me, like the, my love of Army football isn't obviously just because it's my alma mater, but it is the history behind it. Um, yeah. I, I love the stories of Army football, and they when that team emerged kind of as being national contenders and they were so prominent in the 40s, it really was almost this rallying call for the rest of America to kind of rally around what they considered the nation's team. And it's like it's kind of that playing at a historical place like Mikey Stadium, um, overlooking the campus. Like for me, that was always more what it was about was this and also kind of what it what it builds in terms of or what it can build, not always, uh, camaraderie and belief. And then if you come together, you can overcome unquestionable odds or be the underdog and come out victorious. And I think those principles translate really effectively to military service. I think we do have, we've gotten a little way from that in army football. I'll be honest over the years. I think you're more apt to see that in army rugby these days than you are army football. And that's not a knock on army football necessarily. I just think the culture around football in America in general has changed a lot. 
Yeah, it is very, uh, when you think about old-timey kind of sports and, and Army versus Navy, you just throw football in there. It's like pure Americana. It's like a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. Were you connected to, like, all the sports while you were there? I don't want to just focus on football, but did this afford you, like, more opportunities to connect with other groups while you're going there? So I think West Point's a little bit different only in the sense that, so you don't, like, you are housed in companies across regiments, and then within your company, you are assigned roommates very infrequently. I think sometimes you can pick your roommates. I was very lucky I got to pick mine after I was a freshman, but your freshman year, you're assigned roommates. And so then you're kind of forced to intermix. And for a while, uh, you had to then sit with your company as well, like at meals. You couldn't sit with your team. That shifted a little bit. Now they have what's called core squad. So if you are, um, you're, you're playing at like football or baseball, uh, you, you sit with your team at meals. And so I personally kind of disagree with that. It was, it was nice when I was there, but in retrospect, I think some of the huge benefits of West Point is that kind of building that across, uh, across teams or across your companies. Um, so yes, it kind of exposed you to other teams, but honestly less so than I think would at other universities or colleges, just by virtue of the fact that you were assigned to a company that you didn't pick and you were assigned to roommate your freshman year that you didn't pick. Um, and then they also would, so my year didn't scramble. I mean, we didn't get moved to another company the way some other years previously did. Some years, year groups got scrambled multiple times. So after their freshman year, they get scrambled to a different company, meaning different roommates, different pools of people, and they would get scrambled again after their third year into their senior year. So we didn't, we were one of the only classes to stay all four years with our company, but other classes, that wasn't the case. So even if you were kind of a core squad athlete and insulated in your own sport, you were still exposed to a lot of different people um both athletes and non-athletes alike so it'd be just like very secondary to how west point already operates with intermixing everybody yes football's a little bit different i'm going to be honest and there's been a lot of articles that have come out recently about that and how football's almost become this kind of different class within west point itself and how that can potentially cause impact on how the core bonds together camaraderie seeing them as almost a special class uh, within West Point itself. So that is a, that, I think that phenomenon has emerged a little bit over the past decade or so. I don't want to say it's like all of a sudden happened now. I think it's been kind of a slow slide to that. But outside of them, I think that the other teams, for the most part, are, are kind of more integrated within the Corps of Cadets. So academically, did you know you wanted to do politics? Yeah, I've always loved politics. I think people are politics, right? And that's what I find really fascinating is that like politics is people coming together in a variety of different ways, either in mass or singular to impact these massive systems. And so I was very interested in that when I, when I first got to West Point. And then I also wanted to kind of begin to understand how nation states are established or how nation states fail or don't fail, which is kind of more why I went into the comparative politics side. So that was initially what kind of pulled me in that direction. And I had some the, the social department, the social sciences department at West Point is, is world renowned. It's fantastic. And I had some really, really incredible instructors there that also got me to really critically think about myself and my own assumptions about one, why I even selected comparative politics, but also how to begin thinking about some of these really complex problems. I've seen that you are, uh, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of openly conservative on social media, which are not a, mm-hmm. a lot of people are willing to be nowadays, no matter how you lean. So do you have any opinions on like today, right? Whether you work in corporate America or whatever you're doing, uh, the willingness to be open with your politics and responsible with it so that you can have meaningful conversations with people. And it's not something that you hide away and never talk about. And it's not something that you 
uh, only talk about in hysterics. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think modeling that one is, is imperative. I think very often we get really entrenched in these ideas or these belief systems about what a party looks like or what about a belief system looks like. And when we when we have that, when we have this kind of radicalization to either side or this inability to have genuine conversation about it or reflective conversation, you have what kind of what we're seeing now with this massive polarization, this inability to reach across the divide and have these conversations about some really tough topics, right? Let's not, you know, I don't, I don't want to bandy about it and say politics is easy and we should be having these easy conversations. Like you can vehemently disagree about things and still be respectful and thoughtful and genuine in your disagreement. And I think that that is missing a lot of times. And I, I will be honest, one of the classes we're required to take at Columbia was a diversity seminar for, for psychotherapy. And we had to, my, my cohort was very small. There was eight of us. And we had to all go around and kind of disclose, quote unquote, disclose a hidden identity. And I was with, oh my gosh, some of the most lovely people you will ever imagine in my cohort. And all of them had very interesting things they were disclosing about themselves. Um, and I want to honor them by not kind of sharing any of them. But when it got to me, and they were mostly centered around, I will say like socioeconomic status, religion, things like that. And when it got to me, you know, I self-disclosed as a conservative, as a Republican, and like <laughs> the feeling in the room at the time was like the air had all been sucked out of it um, because it just wasn't anticipated. I was at Columbia. It was right after 2016. And the idea of like kind of self-disclosing that and being kind of willing to stand up and say, actually, this is the identity I identify with. And I want you guys to know that was a really powerful moment for me. And I hope a powerful moment for them, which is that like we don't have scales under our shirts or anything like both sides can be, again, lovely, amazing, engaging people. Um, but if we're not having conversations and we're not being honest about it, you begin to make assumptions. Our brains are very often will fill in those gaps and will default to the oftentimes stereotypes or what we think are the worst things about those groups. Or uh, I've seen assuming that other people agree with you just because no one is openly discussing it. Wait, is that, mean, sorry, say that again? Personally, from what I've seen sometimes is that People will just go on talking, assuming that everyone in the room agrees with them yeah. uh, be, because the people that don't haven't spoken up because that uh, environment doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think often people, regardless of what's a political identity or other identities, if they don't feel comfortable sharing that for either fear or even feelings of shame or guilt or any number of things won't kind of share. And I think that it's, it is important for those that can feel comfortable moving past that and being open to sharing. Because more often than not, one, you'll feel like you're not alone. But two, you also can begin to have these hard, difficult discussions about some things that people sometimes don't want to talk about, but I think are really important that we do we do talk about in different capacities. I'll try to make an analogy and you two keep me honest if I'm uh, totally missing the mark. But I, I think about it as like a really powerful motorcycle and you, you get on. The easiest thing is to not touch the throttle at all and then just get off and walk away. If you're not careful about it, it's easy to overthrottle, wheelie out and toss yourself on the pavement. And then I guess with a little bit of practice and respect for the bike, you can start riding it. That's actually a really good and interesting analogy that I've never thought of. Um, 
Yeah, it can be. And I think that when you get any new thing, whether it's a motorcycle or not, our, your instinct is like, oh, you want to test it out and see how fast it can go. And so kind of the natural inclination is like, let's push it. Let's see how it feels. Uh, and that first foray, whatever that looks like, can then have kind of devastating consequences on the back end. Either you don't feel comfortable sharing or you've overshared and now people right. like feel either intimidated or don't want to meet you there. But no, I, I actually really like that analogy. I may steal that if you don't mind. Go ahead, uh, open source, public domain. Okay, so when you get done with university, you go into Quartermaster Corps, which mm -hmm. I'll leave it up to you to define because, again, I'm not great with Army terminology <laughs> like an yes. idiot. But, uh, and, then, and then going into rigging and aerial delivery. So can you just give mm -hmm. like us and the people listening like a once-over on that and we could start talking about it? Yeah. So quartermaster is logistics. So think of supply mostly, but under that kind of broad core of logistics, there are a lot of different areas that you can focus in and less so as an officer, more so kind of on the enlisted side, there's a lot of military occupational specialties. So jobs that fall under that broader kind of quartermaster umbrella, you have fuelers, you have those that are uh, related to water and water treatment. You have kind of general, more supply type stuff. You have aerial delivery, mortuary affairs actually rolls up under the quartermaster umbrella. So it's a really diverse group of military occupational specialties. But kind of what you're talking about before, both my parents are paratroopers. I really wanted to jump out of planes. That is really what I wanted to do. Also, you know, at West Point, they talk about leadership and leadership, at least when you're kind of a cadet and you're hearing all of these things, means leading people at a platoon level. So being a platoon leader was something that was talked about, reinforced. That was like the epitome of what we should be striving for as cadets. And so I was really interested in Med Service Corps. I was really interested in military intelligence. And I was kind of told by my mentors at the academy, like, you may or may not get a platoon. Oftentimes, they may lead a section or they may have a shop they lead, but you are uh, unlikely to get a platoon. There are some out there, of course, but it, it's less likely. And so I was kind of like, oh, well, then like, what will guarantee me a platoon? What could I do? And back then, uh, none of the combat arms were open to women, so artillery, armor, infantry were not options. And so I knew I didn't want to be military police. And I was kind of like, oh, what's left for me? And so quartermasters seemed to have, again, this like kind of wide variety of things. And there was a female officer at West Point who was a rigger and had talked about what a great experience it was. So that kind of led my decision to choose quartermaster. I was high enough that I knew I would get my first post choice. So I chose Bragg. I went to my my basic course. And I knew if I performed well, I would be able to kind of on the back end pick a school that I wanted to go to. And so I did that to be able to pick rigor school. I went to rigor school. And then that kind of led me to getting to Fort Bragg, which is where I was the initially assigned as a platoon leader for a parachute pack company. So our parachute pack platoon, which their responsibilities are packing all of the par personnel parachutes for the 82nd Airborne. I read somewhere is the biggest platoon in the Army. So my platoon was 132 people when I got there. It was massive. It was really unexpected. Um, I was also 22. Uh, so I was very young. And to walk in and be like, this is like the size of bigger than some companies. And the army was was daunting at first. But yeah, it was it was a very, very, very large platoon. Yeah. Ben, uh, platoon is like 40-ish people in, in a lot of job specialties. Well, I just go off infantry because it's like the most basic. 40 people in a platoon, three to four squads, three to four platoons in a company, so like 120 mm -hmm. people, but 130-person platoon, it's pretty interesting. How do you divide yeah. that up? 
so you still have like, you know, you still have squads and everything, but you, and you also had sections. So we had like a parachute pack section that was mostly focused on static line. And then we had a halo section that was responsible for packing all of it for the Lurse guys and gals. And then we had, um, oh gosh, I feel like I'm missing a group. Do you do equipment too, or do you say that you just focus on personnel? Cause th- there's like a big bifurcation there too, right? Right. So there's heavy drop, which is what you're talking about. So mat, but large equipment. Uh, and then there's the personnel side. There's also the maintenance side. So within typically within an aerial delivery company, I shouldn't say typically my company was set up this way. You had one massive platoon dedicated to, to personnel parachute pack. You had heavy drop that was focused on simply heavy drop itself. And then maintenance, which was responsible for doing all of the maintenance. And by means, I mean like sewing parachutes or replacing static lines or uh, doing nylon type work. That was also, I, I never was in um, a maintenance section. So I had experience doing heavy drop down range and then I was a uh, personnel pack stateside. So what are some of the differences? Cause I can kind of slide into parachute nerd mode as someone who's done a lot of uh, free fall uh, parachuting, yeah. but, uh, so on the heavy drop, you always hear about, yeah, man, the 82nd dropped a tank and left the crater Burn in the in. earth or something. Yeah, exactly. So well, not a tank because it's not a uh, mechanizer arm or anything. What's the heaviest thing that you can drop on a parachute? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I'm I'm gonna mess it up. I don't even want to tell you because I could, I don't even know offhand anymore. And I, and I maybe it's changed now too. I mean, they ha- I think they have dropped track vehicles though, so I think that they have really? dropped some really large things. I, I, maybe a tank. So I mean, when we were downrange, we were dropping like air. We were dropping like food, water bundles. We weren't doing these like kind of big things, but. There yeah. was a couple of times that things burned in when we were we were at Bragg. And I want to say one was a Humvee. Never a good thing. But I do think that they've dropped yeah. back vehicles. I don't know. Mandatory movie reference right now. Uh, the reboot of the A-Team, like 10 or so years ago, where they, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they fly the tank by <laughs> aiming the main gun left and right on the parachutes. Totally uh, accurate. That was, that that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the A-team is great because just you're not supposed to take it at face value. That's why it's great. It's yeah. just absurdity. Um, but, yeah, it's great. I think that's why a lot of people like Rambo and all those kind Ooh. of movies where it's just like out of out of control would never happen. But it's great to watch exploding arrow tips, arrowheads and Rambo the, flying the tank in the A-team. Some guy puts up some crazy, you know, toothpaste wall charge and blows open a perfect hole in something. It's great. Well, I think suspending reality is something we all enjoy, right? That's why we love TV and sometimes social media. When we get to suspend reality, engage in fantasy, just from a psychological perspective, that like boosts everything. It boosts our mood. Um, we can even have that physiological reaction. But I had a kind of like a visceral reaction when you said like, that's why people love Rambo because I, I like very often think of or consider that that Rambo was really this kind of first almost like drop or step towards building the broken warrior broken um, service member trope that I that I get very concerned about and so I I like when I hear Rambo or people even talking about it I get a little tense because I'm like that I think was maybe the first step on a slippery slope towards kind of what we see now around you know this this broken warrior narrative yeah I like to focus more on Rambo is the elite warrior, even though he's the broken warrior. And that's one of the pop culture Italian Americans that my people like to look up to. You know, Rambo, Rocky, 
Uh, oh, gosh. And that's not to take away, by the way, like one, the cultural impact of that movie. I think it, it, it's essential. I think that was necessary at the time. And I think there's like, obviously, it can be like, I don't want to call it campy fun, but Rambo's great, right? There's a lot of great things about it. And, and you obviously you over identify with Rambo, even though as he's in the, the midst of kind of doing these things that on the one hand, you're like, whoa, this is like a little over the top and a little horrific you still want him to win, right? Like you still yeah. over identify with him as a person. And obviously Sylvester Stallone is, is incredible. So again, that, that's not to knock it. It's more to, I think, contextualize or try to begin to understand, or at least what I am doing in my current life, how we maybe got where we've gotten with regard to how we conceptualize service, warriors, psychological treatment, what that looks like, and potentially what the shadow side or consequences are of having movies like that and how we can have more nuanced conversations around them. Yeah. I, I still don't know what Brian Dennehy's problem was, but he's kind of a, he's just an all around, all around dick. And I will say <laughs> that I have multiple, multiple teammates, uh, you know, snapping pictures with, with, uh, with a machine gun tucked under one bicep. So <laughs> that has not died not? off. Yeah. <laughs> and if you uh, can, why not? Right? You know, not willing to there. not willing to disclose whether a one of me exists or not. I think no. Hopefully no. <laughs> to, to kind of reel it back into before we get into that stuff, still talking about aerial delivery. So I want to talk about yeah. deploying and what that job is too. But switching from like equipment to personnel, I know that we discussed. Oh yeah, something burned in the other day. I don't want to disparage mm-hmm. the eighty second because it's always like they'll drop a thousand. Humvees successfully in the right spot, and then everyone's like, "Oh man, check that out! There's a crater in the earth." But when you're talking about personnel, it's a bit of a different game. Oh god, yeah, it's in- absolutely. It's like infinitely more serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, first of all, going back to the story of burning in, I did. I was on a drop zone as a Humvee was burning in, and I was standing next to the heavy drop platoon leader, and we were watching all of them come in because we had to be present on a drop zone, like you know, kind of just do like our duties. And like as it, you could see, like the the parachutes unhook from the platform. Like it was, um, I hate to say this, it was like almost like a joyous moment because you're like, oh my god, it's happening, uh, because <laughs> because it falls so like you think it's gonna be like fast, it falls so slow that you can be like, oh my god, it's happening, it's happening, and you can just watch it. And obviously nobody's in danger, so it was kind of like, and then he's standing there, which obviously there's huge inspections afterwards, just all the consequences of like making a massive failure like that, and yeah. I was just like oh, sorry for you. And this is awesome. Like, it was kind of cool to watch it happen, which is also goes back to the human experience of wanting to see kind of these things happen in, in real time. But when it comes to people, obviously, completely different story. So the benefit of the T-10, which was a parachute we had before what we have now, which is the T-11. So we transitioned parachutes, gosh, that would have been back in 2000 and like 12, 13 time, I think was the fielding and testing frame. Well, testing was before that. That's when we began to really roll it out. Uh, the T-10 was like the kind of what you traditionally see in pictures. It's like that big green canopy, looks like a mushroom top. And you could basically ball it up in a trash bag and throw it in and like it would basically open. It was a very, it was for the most part, even from a packing perspective, it wasn't overly complicated. Um, I had to pack my battalion commander's parachute when I first got to Fort Rag, which was a little frightening. Every rigger was required to pack and jump their own chute, jump and pack their own reserve. And the idea was obviously instilling confidence in yourself and your skills. But anytime there was ever any type of malfunction, there was a big investigation to try to understand either what went wrong mechanically or what potentially went wrong from the personnel side. And you would obviously pull their pack logs and you would look at everything and then you would randomly pull down parachutes they had packed. because You would pack them, you'd stack them in the back of the shop. And then you'd basically do like a randomized 
pull of all their different shoots and check them to make sure either it wasn't a systemic problem. And then if it was, obviously you pull down all of their shoots or just if maybe it was a one-off and something just unfortunately happened, right? Because there is human error. If you have humans packing parachutes, you're going to interject the risk of a human being doing it. And so do you take a very like structured logistical approach to this? Because I know that you have to manage how much work people do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So there's no burnout. Are you having to shift people around stations? So everybody had quotas. And so you couldn't pack more than your daily quota. So you could obviously pack less. So 20 at the time for T10s, it was 25. You could pack 25 for a day and kind of anything past that was considered you getting to the point of either fatigue, burnout, or you were no longer paying attention. And then within that context, you had other Red Hat riggers that were doing rigger checks on the packing. So every time you get to a certain point in the packing process, you'd have to call rigger and then they would come over and they'd ensure that you appropriately got to whatever endpoint that was before you could move on to the next step to continue packing the parachute. And then we had a requirement that we had. So we kind of knew based on the air letter, which was kind of the letter that came out saying, this is how many airframes we have. This is how many paratroopers that we require to jump. And remember, I mean, obviously, you know this, Matt, um, but for Ben and everyone else that, you know, parachute pay is based on your ability to get out of an aircraft once a quarter. If you hadn't jumped in that quarter, you could, you, you could lose your parachute pay. And that money is critical for our soldiers, but it's also imperative that we keep proficiency up. And at the height of the GWAT, the global war on terror, a lot of our airframes were overseas for good reason. And so getting people, making sure that they were getting out of the aircraft and getting their parachute pay was really important. But also, like you were saying, Matt, it's like a logistical thing. How do I pack enough parachutes? Parachutes also expire. So you could only have them. And so we had the parachute issue facility, which was responsible for managing all of this. The parachutes could only stay packed for so long before they quote unquote expired. And then you'd have to un- like kind of pull them apart and repack them even if they had never been jumped. So it was a kind of management of all of that. And I had incredible non-commissioned officers that were responsible for a lot of that. And then I uh, there's aerial delivery technicians. So warrant officers that are assigned to all those different sections who are also responsible for kind of helping manage all of that. So I had a, a great, I had a bunch of great parachute techs. And then there's also the, um, gosh, I'm forgetting. There's like a main person in charge. And for a long time, it was a major and Dunwoody, who was the first female general officer held this position, DPO division parachute officer. It's not called that anymore. I don't remember what it's called now, but they kind of oversaw the running of all of that. Um, from both the company I was in and then the companies that, that supported the 18th Airborne Corps. And so now... I was long sorry. That, that's fine. So now I've seen that now everyone's jumping, it looks like big squares. Is that the T-11? T-11, so yeah, and it's a crucifix design. So it's like usually silver and it has like, a, it looks like a cross that has just been folded over onto itself. And I'm like moving my hands right now, like people can see me and obviously they can't, it's hilarious. Um, but yeah, if you take like a cross and then just kind of fold it over on itself, that's what the T-11 looks like. And that was just regular technological progression, the next best thing. Is it like harder to pack or what, did anything change over that? So it, it's harder to pack. There were more rigor checks. It took a longer amount of time. So it, the quota went from 25 to a lower number. And I can't remember what it is right now, to be honest. But the intent initially of adopting it was because they wanted paratroopers to be able to carry a heavy load and also have a slower um, descent time. So like Kind of slower descent time mean less injury because you're hopefully impacting more yeah. easily. I can't remember what the stats are now. 
but that that was the intent. That was the that was the push for why they were they were adopting it. What was that? But all of that was also happening while there was a lot of discussion around whether or not airborne capability for a division type, you know, like not talking necessarily about Rangers or Halo, but whether traditional airborne units were even the type of deterrent that existed now for the reason why they were initially established, which was kind of airfield seizure. Um, it's kind of massive deterrence. We could put division on a drop zone anywhere within 96 hours, uh, did that matter? So it, we were adopting this new parachute with that backdrop also happening, this kind of discussion around whether or not airborne was still relevant. Are you willing to opine on having an entire division of airborne at the ready? So if you had asked me if we were like kind of talking about the global war on terror for kind of a conventional line unit to have that capability or conventional division, I probably would have waffled a little bit more. I think now as we begin to see what the emerging threats in our world look like, I do think it's a, ne- a necessary deterrent for us to have that ability to interject a rapid number of people um, at any point in time within that kind of short, narrow time sequence. And I think it's even less than 96 hours now. I Honestly, I haven't, it's been a long time since I thought about like the, the, the deployment sequence, but I would say definitively, yes, we need that capability for a variety of different reasons. If Space Force offered me to rejoin and be there in charge of their uh, paratrooping division, then I would, uh, <laughs> I, would, I would definitely be interested in that. So I'm the fool. So I, I hear space. My brother wants, my little brother wants to be in Space Force. I love space. I think it's awesome. My daughter like wants to be um, a rocket scientist. She wants to like discover her own element. But like, I often think of space and I think I'm like, oh yeah, you know, space machine gunner or whatever. But you know, it's, it's, it's satellites, right? Most people don't realize, me being one of them, um, that most of what we're talking about space right now isn't like kind of space exploration that's a piece of it it is it's satellite dominance it's 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 dominating the space directly above us not so far above us that you know we're we're talking again about exploration but more about making sure that we can accurately and clearly see the movement and the capabilities of our enemies yeah the military afforded me a lot of opportunity to travel the world do cool stuff learn cool things uh for free or getting paid to do it uh space travel I wonder how that's working as a recruiting tool. Like, you know how many people joined the Air Force after Top Gun came out? And they're like, wait, Top Gun's Top Gun, that's Navy. And it's a bunch of officers. Why are you enlisting in the Air Force? I wonder if people like, yeah, man, I just can't wait to uh, experience weightlessness. Actually, you're going to be in supply here on an Air Force base. You're going to be doing a little connex, doing like satellite operations. Yeah. But I think actually after was it um, Captain America came out, they actually saw a massive recruiting in the Air Force again, too. So, man, they seem to get all the all the winning things. Was Captain America Air Force? I don't watch these things, but you have kids or or I don't know if you're into Marvel movies and stuff. What was the thing with the the Air Force and Captain America? she was an Air Force officer, I think. She was a pilot. Um, I don't think she was a Navy a- naval aviator. I think oh, no, that's not yeah. Captain America. That's um... Oh, not Captain America. The... <laughs> Look at how much I know. <laughs> the, what is the Marvel. Captain Marvel. No, Major Marvel. Something with Marvel. The woman. <laughs> okay, yeah. They saw, but they saw a massive recruiting spike to the Air Force, I think, of women and also of men at that time. So, I mean... Maybe Space Force, maybe we'll see in a couple months that Space Force hasn't been a major recruiter. And when we see a space movie come out, maybe that will also be the case. I think the only one matter. so far is just a parody with uh, oh, Steve Carell. Oh. But when they come out, when they come out with a better Space Force movie, we'll see. Yeah, that show's hilarious. That show is so funny. I also watched it in the pandemic, so I was probably like, going crazy at the time. But I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very okay. good. <laughs> You, you touched a, for like just a second on um, being deployed and what your mission was there. 
So can you talk about shifting from Fort Bragg to going to Afghanistan and what aerial delivery looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, just by virtue of we are operating in more of an austere environment. So, Matt, you obviously know this, but our ability to get supplies or move things on a battlefield look very different. And so as a way of kind of overcoming that and making sure we could reach some of these, especially more austere locations, whether it was combat outposts, forward operating bases that were either in mountains or in kind of more untenable areas, we had to do aerial delivery in order to resupply people, especially during some of the winter or wet months where roads were, roads that did exist were almost impassable. So we were dropping all, water, fuel, food to all of those, those locations kind of throughout Afghanistan at the time. So I was stationed out of Bagram. So we are mostly responsible for RC East, RC North, um, and then we split RC South with the, uh, and so Afghanistan was broken up into regional commands. And so that's what I mean by RC. So there's regional command East, North, South, West, uh, and then Kandahar, which was more in the Southern part of Afghanistan. They were predominantly responsible for the other half of RC South and then all of RC West. So there's units in these outlying positions and and rather than doing a resupply run with the trucks and trying to get blown up or, or traveling through the snow or anything, we call up plane, comes by, kicks it out or helicopter, floats mm-hmm. down and we collect up all our goodies. Is this on like a set schedule? Are you resupplying ad hoc? Are you managing like warehousing inventory on the back end? Are you doing emergency operations? How does all that tie together? So all of that. So I would say probably the more of like the emergent, immediate emergency stuff. We had a lot of those missions, but a lot of that would typically go more to the Joint Special Operations Command side. So they were the ones that were more dropping like um, what we call speedball. So they were the ones that were kind of kicking out your like body bags filled with like emergency resupply in certain areas. So those were less like even aerial delivery. They were more just aerial delivery by virtue of the fact they were coming from the sky, but not anything to do with rigging necessarily. Yeah. But we, so some did have a set schedule. Some we knew that they would need food, water, and fuel at a certain point just by virtue of the schedule. Um, and then there were some that were more emergent, like human- we did some humanitarian drops. We were dropping bundles of rice and rice cookers that were not obviously for American forces, but were for more humanitarian assistance and aid to Afghans. We also trained um, the the first uh, partnership kind of with the ANA, the Afghan National Army, to kind of begin conducting their own aerial delivery uh, so kind of all of those things, we, we dropped, we were dropped a toilet as a gift to someone in a, you know, a, kind of, they were doing a negotiation in a travel area that they want a toilet. They got a toilet, um, an American toilet. We dropped chickens, live chickens. And then some things that were more morale, kind of morale based. We dropped ice cream. Uh, we dropped, you know, steaks and things like that when we could. I, my mom sent me, I cannot even tell you how many pounds of Halloween candy that I went through and stashed on every like, big bags of Halloween candy that I could stash in every bundle. So even if they requested water, I was like trying to put Halloween candy on all of them. We dropped like a bunch of Christmas bundles that again were more morale based. I would also go to the the PX because at Bagram, it's a big air base. We had access to like a big PX. Like I would go and buy logs of dip or uh, like magazine like maxim and magazines like that and i would stuff them on bundles where i could so i would go do that a couple times a month too just as like surprise (laughs) unexpected (laughs) here you go um though i was always like what if this like doesn't make it on the drop zone like lands in some village and they're like oh what is this and then it's like one of those magazines um so that was always a thought in my mind. Uh, but so we, yeah, we would kind of do all those things. And then the back end too was managing the warehouse side, which was the, the actual supplies so the food and the water and all of that. Uh, but also all the things that go into making these bundles, which there's a lot of cardboard underneath. You have to cut all the cardboard and it's come pre-cut. 
So just managing, you don't realize massive amounts of cardboard and packing tools. And then the parachutes we were using were not reusable. They were like throwaways. So managing all of that stock and making sure that we had enough um, was also kind of part of part of the mission. It's not very sexy, uh, but it was critical at times. Yeah, it's it's uh, great when you get a bundle of food and water and probably some ammo and frags and uh, Maxim magazine on top just for good measure. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't yeah. care how many people that. <laughs> <laughs> This is Matt with a quick promo for a couple organizations we discussed on today's episode. Merging Vets and Players, or MVP, is a nonprofit co-founded by our friend and star of episode five of this podcast, Nate Boyer. Frankly, it does exactly what the name says, bringing veterans and former athletes together to support one another after taking off the uniform. They do this through physical fitness and peer-to-peer support. You can find out more by going to vetsandplayers.org or by searching Merging Vets and Players on your social media channels. The Commit Foundation's mission is to help exceptional American service members and veterans transition into successful roles and careers post-service. It connects service members and veterans to a professional network that will translate their cultivated professional skills to a meaningful career in the civilian sector while exposing them to opportunities they may not otherwise see. To learn more, visit commitfoundation.org. A quick note, we log many of the nonprofits we discuss on our show at thankyounowwhat.com slash nonprofits for you to check them out there. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. So this leads me to what I want to ask you to kind of like pivot content right here. So I'll take like the layperson's, well, why didn't you stick with logistics? Because yeah. <laughs> you're, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty great at it, right? Oh man, Amazon uh, would kill for you. I, you know what? And gosh, sometimes I look back and I'm like, that would have been a really good idea to pivot into post uh, military. But I loved aerial delivery. I loved everything about it. I loved jumping. I loved the idea. Like you know, we are uh, at West Point. You're kind of steeped in all the the military history and how imperative it was that the supply chain was was there in order for the, you know, the ones that were fighting on the front lines in order for them to actually, you know, kind of Napoleon established that, like you can't outrun your supply lines. And so the idea that we were contributing in that capacity was something that I just, I loved deeply. And then I got back from Afghanistan and I went to a st- staff job and I was the battalion S4, which is like the logistics officer for an entire battalion. And this battalion again was huge. I had 13 companies, which is not typical. Typically there's five. We were deactivating a bunch of them. We were turning in obsolete equipment and it was just like nothing I ever wanted to do. It was, it was awful. Like I'll, I'll just be honest. It was awful. I hated every bit of it. Um, it was obviously still meaningful. And for those that love logistics, I think they probably would have loved that job, but it was soul sucking. And I, while I had been in Afghanistan, I had been connected with one of the first psychologists for a tier one special operations. And I began to get really interested in psychology for a variety of different reasons. And so as that kind of interest was emerging, it was alongside of this like absolutely soul sucking job. And then on top of that, I got pregnant. And so I thought I was going to take command. These commands were kind of like, Oh, nope, you can't take command, you're pregnant, which by the way, doesn't happen now, but did happen then. And I was like, I'm going to be stuck behind a desk doing these jobs I hate for years. And this is just not something that I want to invest my time or energy in. So that's when I began kind of thinking, okay, what do I want to do after I leave service? What do I want to do next? What does that look like? How do I even begin to get in this field? So 
my mentor, who was a psychologist, was like, well, you're not going to get into any PhD program or PsyD program with an undergrad degree in comparative politics. Like, not going to happen. So you need to begin thinking through, what does that look like? If you want to come back... And so I, I began to think that I really wanted to go back in the army or in the military. I actually didn't even, wasn't even solely about the army as a psychologist. So I was like, okay, I have to do something. I knew my husband was getting ready to deploy. And so I was like, I'm going to apply to master's programs and flexible master's programs so I can go to school at night. He'll be gone, but I'll be able to kind of be a stay-at-home mom during the day for our newborn and then just kind of begin to piecemeal or piece together what this post-military career is going to look like for myself. And so you start off by going to George Washington. Mm-hmm. So kind start- of, it's funny that the that you're starting to think of a master's degree as a prerequisite to what you want to actually get into because you're starting to develop like a pretty long roadmap. So, I mean, there are people that get into, so PhD programs for psychology specifically are extraordinarily competitive right now um, because it's very expensive to get a PhD in psychology because it could be five to six years. Uh, The programs are very small. They select a very small number of people. Uh, Psychology has really begun to try to pivot towards being more of a hard science and with a focus on neuroscience. And so kind of getting into that, you have to be very competitive. And most people do their undergrads, they work in the lab that they want to be in as undergrads, and they spend the summer working there, or they begin to build relationships with people in those kind of uh, like PhD level labs early on. And I, I didn't have that. So some people can do it directly out of undergrad. Typically, you still need some years of research under your belt, but there was just no way I was going to be able to do that without a background in psychology. So kind of the quickest or the, the kind of the easiest road at the time, and the thing I was most interested in was this program at George Washington, which is a forensic psychology program. So forensic, kind of the intersection of psychology and the law, but it also had a component related to national security. So I knew that I could take, so Jerry Post is a world-renowned political psychologist. He worked for the CIA for 40 years. He was recruited out of Harvard as a psychiatrist. And then he worked for 40 years with the CIA as a profiler of world leaders in order to inform negotiation techniques and also to kind of understand decision-making on the behalf of like our enemies or even our friends, our allies. And so I was like, I know that I want to take a course with him. I know this program is flexible enough where I'll take all the required courses, but I also can try to begin to create space for myself where I'm doing something that I'm interested in, which is more around this, again, intersection of psychology and more kind of national security type things. So that's what led me there. You had to do kind of a six year or six months, not six year, six months or was it a, was it a year? Oh gosh, I can't even remember now. Um, but I spent that time frame with uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Services in their Protective Operations Field Office which was responsible for monitoring all communications or threats against the, the Navy principal. So the SECNAV or any of their top flag officers. And so you're kind of starting out your path into psychology with this view on applying it to the military, right? You said that your mentor mm-hmm. was a psych at a special operations unit and, and you're starting to kind of focus on this, but it sounds like it changed a little bit over time. It did. Um, for, I guess, a lot of different reasons. And again, so the context, too, of me beginning to pursue this is uh, is with the backdrop of there was an article that came out in Vanity Fair called War, Shock, and Awe, which talks about the util- utilization of psychologists and in interrogations at black sites. And so I'm beginning kind of this journey, and this is kind of contextualized a little bit of, of what I was thinking and experiencing at the time of how do we begin to use psychology like in an ethical manner, but also in an effective manner 
for national security purposes. So at this point in time, I'm getting my master's. I am like hell bent on going back active duty and being a psychologist for either some like special operations or human team or utilizing it even as a research psychologist to do or inform assessment and selection. So I did that. I was very lucky. It was very serendipitous that I got into Columbia. And I, and I say that not to be like, like humble, like there, I should never have gotten in. Uh, it's an extraordinarily competitive program. It just so happened that the year I was applying, someone gave a very large gift and endowed a fellowship that was supposed to focus on research around military members and veterans. And the year I was applying was that when that gift was given. And also there was already a former West Point graduate in the lab at the time. And he made sure that my application was seen. And so that's obviously the way of things in, in most of the world. But I say that because like, I, I think it's so imperative that one, like I feel like constantly I need to pay it forward. Uh, but also because people, I think, some, don't often realize just the, the competitive nature it is to get into some of these PhD programs and people that I was admitted with had applied for four or five, six years um, before getting in. So I, I shouldn't have gotten in, but it, again, I did. And so then I felt as soon as I got in that I had to begin figuring out a way to pay it back. And so you said, I think in an earlier uh, chat that we had, that the PhD program had to be a one-to-one match for faculty and student, yeah. right? So most, uh, most like PhD programs are, so you like apply to the, the school program and then the person and the person is who ultimately picks you. So you have to make it through like the, the school requirements, the programmatic requirements, and then that mentor, you have to be a good fit because you're ultimately like they, one, they're tacking their name on to yours for all of your research. Uh, and so you're kind of like that, that, that pairing, that coupling of you with your research mentor, uh, it also reflects on them and their legacy as well. So uh, at least in, in in that particular field, yeah, you have to be kind of selected by that mentor. Is that like a first author, second author kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so your mentor takes second author on all of your papers, right? Exactly. So second author on all your papers, but they're also really ultimately they're, they're they're kind of like your sherpa, like they're trying to make sure that you're negotiating the way that you need to, but they're they're, they're also churning out like good scientists. At least for my advisor, who is very very. Um, feels very strongly about seeing psychology as a science unless it's like kind of an art or may, maybe has been historically seen as a soft science. Like for him, it's very important that we're doing rigorous research that can be applied and generalized um, and is reliable. Is this uh, George Bonanno? Yes. Uh, can we say his name? Because also like, uh, again, Italian, one of the five families, right? Yeah, you know, know, George you know that, right? I do, but he's, so he's not. Um, George is fantastic. He's like a world-renowned researcher on loss and trauma and emotion. And so he is like just an incredible resource and he has another book coming out. I think it's coming out in September of this year that is about this kind of how we have like almost like jumped the shark on the trauma narrative in America. So when you say we jumped the shark on the trauma narrative, is this a, a good time to connect it back to what we said about Rambo? Yeah. Well, Oh, it's a little bit different, but yeah, we, I mean, we can always try to make a connection. I'll make a bridge anywhere. Okay, cool. So first let's talk about how you get into discussing more like veterans issues. Cause I know this is, you're, you're pretty Googleable, and I know this is what will come up for the most part. And when, when do you shift into uh, researching and discussing psychological topics in the veteran population as opposed to national security, which we've been talking about? Yeah. So again, a requirement is to do a lot of research. My, my mentor was very research heavy. So the first year I get there and so he is very focused on the idea that that the modal response and not focused on the idea he's proven 
that the modal response to exposure to potentially traumatic events is resilience. That most people after a traumatic event will have a dip in functioning. You may, may have some emergent symptoms, something that looks like adjustment disorder, and then ultimately you're going to recover. And it makes sense from an evolutionary biological perspective, right? That if we were exposed to traumatic things and crumbled all the time, then we wouldn't survive as a species. So by and large, most people experience this kind of recovery or resilience trajectory. So knowing that, right? But, 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 but PTSD is the hotness. Um, it's like not a scientific term, don't quote me. But like it's very, it, people feel very powerfully about it. Number one, all the money's there. There's a lot of money there for research. Um, and there, for some reason, we are in, inherently drawn to trauma and just in general, right? There's something about it, whether it's, it's the narrative around it, whether it's the recovery from it. Uh, tr- human beings are, are very interested in trauma, but everyone's doing PTSD research. And again, George's research is focused and his early stage was on grief, actually, and then it became resilience. And then now he's most focused more on emotion flexibility. Uh, but knowing that, this is a long way around the barn, I'm sorry, knowing that I was like, how do I begin to carve out space for myself from a research perspective that's not necessarily trauma focused and is not necessarily related to PTSD, but still contributes to kind of the scientific canon of literature. So I basically my first year, I devoured got everything I could get on my hands that had been written by a post 9-11 veteran. So I'm not talking about academic articles. I'm not talking about like academic books. I'm talking about whether it was blog posts, whether it was books, whether it was articles, op-eds, whatever it may be. I read them all, watched all the TED Talks, just kind of consumed them as much as possible my first year when I was at Columbia. Like Instagram posts? Yeah, everything, social media, um, how that impacted other people disclosing, what that looked like. Um, so less Instagram at the time. Well, yeah, I guess Instagram and Facebook, yeah. So began trying to, like, what is happening here? Because it's not necessarily trauma. People aren't necessarily focused on PTSD per se, but there's still a lot of distress in the veteran space. And what is that distress? How do we begin putting a name to it? And what does that look like? And it uh, kind of across all of these things began to emerge this idea that, like, one, war isn't inherently damaging, that there can actually be some massive positive impacts of war. But what really seems to cause people the most struggle is a transition off of active duty and back into civilian life. And so that area, this idea that that transition itself is creating the the distress that we're seeing in the veteran space is where I began to focus myself. So I'm, I'm still very interested in national security psychology, how we can begin to use psychology to better inform our decision making risk, how we assess and select people and what that looks like, but for the purpose of kind of beginning to push through my PhD, but also trying to understand and help other veterans, um, that was really where I began to focus my time and energy. I read something recently and it jumped off the page at me and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I read that suicide rates among veterans who had seen combat and who had not seen combat are not significantly statistically different. Yeah, so combat doesn't predict suicidality is what you're saying. And, and yes, that's true. Combat doesn't also necessarily predict PTSD either. So exposure to combat doesn't necessarily mean that you're obviously going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And in fact, like kind of all of my experiences, but for people that do have PTSD, and again, this isn't to like undermine or underscore how insidious PTSD can be, that it is prevalent in the veteran population, just not as potentially prevalent as previous researchers had thought, that kind of the upper estimates of what PTSD is in the veteran population for the post 9-11 generation, that that kind of 20%, which gets seen thrown around a lot, isn't accurate. That's probably more on the lower, and I I say low, 8 to 12% is still a lot of PTSD, but it's probably more around that than 20%. A lot of what we talk, I mean, the basis for our podcast is uh, transition, but, you know, Mm -hmm. we talk to a lot of different people, and I think Ben and I are slowly kind of 
aggregating more and more anecdotal information, just what we can recall in, in real time. And we kind of, I don't, I don't want to take a giant leap and try to codify it, but the three major things that usually come to my mind, stressors on transition are, are loss of identity, community, and purpose. Is there mm -hmm. anything I'm, I'm missing or have you codified it at all? So we've begun to, so we've kind of begun to try to figure out, so we, we put forward this, this theoretical paper called Beyond War and PTSD, the crucial role of transition stress in the lives of military veterans. And within that, we kind of lay out all these different areas that we are, what kind of buckets, if you want to think about it like that, that may have, that may contribute to transition stress or what we're calling transition stress. And some of it, yes, I think it's around identity. And we're, we're doing some studies right now to try to begin to understand that a little bit better. So this idea of either you've adopted this new identity and now it doesn't necessarily effectively translate, but more we've looked at it from a developmental perspective. So not to totally nerd out, but when most people enter their period of military service, they're in the period of what we developmental psychologists would call emerging adulthood. It's around 18 to 25. And it is kind of a natural period of self-exploration. So you're kind of asking yourself all these existential questions about any number of things, who I am, what my identity is, what do I believe in, what is my place in the world, what is my purpose? And the military, regardless of branch, gives very ready answers to that. And our brains are inherently lazy for very good reason. They're very efficient machines. They kind of want the quickest uh, way to get to an end. And so they'll kind of adopt those belief systems. Uh, and so you may enter what looks like almost like an identity foreclosure or identity forestalling, where maybe the answer to those questions that the military gave you isn't actually congruent with what you may have come on your own terms if you had stayed home or gone to college or done a different job. And so when people transition out, that kind of worldview or that belief system may all of a sudden come in direct conflict to either the new context they find in themselves, whether it's a job or school, but also their own kind of internal uh, idea of who they are and what they want to value or what they believe. So that's one piece of it. So I think that's one piece that can cause transition stress is this kind of like identity rupture. How do I begin to negotiate this new identity? But the other side of identity is also, am I carrying this kind of warrior identity, whatever that looks like, whatever that constellation looks like uh, with me? Have I not been able to necessarily move past my past and I'm kind of dragging it with me into the present? And in that mind, like, are, are we over-relying or are veterans at times over-relying on nostalgia? So nostalgia is generally protective. So it's the idea of longing or remembering. And most people, when they experience nostalgia, they're asked to think of like one of their favorite memories. It's a protective factor. It boosts our mood. It helps us cope with things. But if you're over relying on it, there's also a shadow side to it, which is actually where it can potentially induce lower mood, less self-confidence, kind of feelings of loss of control. So externalizing loss of control rather than internalizing it. And then that can also be exacerbated by social media. So this idea that now it's all playing out in real time, right? You can still see your friends that are serving or you make it like, you know, the remind thing on Facebook or Instagram, like you posted this before and this was back when you were in the military. Is it also potentially triggering psychological processes around longing or nostalgia for a previous self? So it's kind of the identity piece that kind of fall in there. Nostalgia is not necessarily related to identity, but it can kind of be associated with it in this context. Uh, and then there's other things like, socialized masculinity, this idea that we're kind of reinforcing this, these value systems around what masculinity looks like. This is not to like get in a discussion about toxic masculinity. That could be like a whole other podcast and that dangerous, very slippery slope of this idea that we have like vilified an entire kind of gender identity that relates to things that are very adaptive around stoicism, around taking care of a group, around uh, being able to suppress emotion when it's necessary, right? Because if you weren't able to do that, you wouldn't 
survive in something like combat. So it could be socialized masculinity. There's there's a kind of all of these different things that could potentially contribute a loss of purpose. So not finding meaningful employment. So it's not just about employment or a paycheck. It's about like, okay, was I like a machine gunner in a squad that I felt very empowered by? And now I'm stocking shelves at Home Depot. Like, how do you begin to reconcile those two experiences? There's a lot of, and I was thinking about while you're going through that, I thought about our episode with Chase and uh, he actually the one clip that we took out and put on Instagram is like a teaser when he was saying the Marine Corps equips you with a lot of skill that's very beneficial to you in a combat scenario, but it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. So in other aspects of your life or other parts of your timeline, uh, it can start to hurt you. Absolutely. And then in the same ep- in the same episode, he's like g- got blown up in Fallujah and he's got an arm hanging off and he's, he's laying in the... You know, blood-soaked back of a Humvee, and he's telling himself not to be a punk bitch. Excuse Yeah, no, and that's very adaptive, right? So that, And that's a piece, too, that, you know, from a psychological perspective and kind of the work I'm doing now, too, around emotional flexibility is this idea that we have all of these emotional techniques that we can use in situations like that to be adaptive. And so that right there, that kind of, like, self-talk or that distancing effect or that suppression of, like, fear or, gosh, any number of things, sadness, anything, was adaptive. But if you are having a fight with your spouse or your child falls and gets very hurt, and in the aftermath, you are not capable of showing emotion to either your child or your spouse, that's not going to be adaptive. So how do we begin talking about emotion or emotion regulation techniques as like tools in a toolbox and then and kind of creating or highlighting flexibility and making sure people know like, okay, at times this is a tool I want to use, but at times I, you know, I, I got to switch and use a different technique in order to be more effective in my life. You used a uh, a term called personality constellation, I think. Yeah. Why why do they why do they say constellation? I'm just curious. Yeah. So I mean, it's more like a kind of a terminology I just threw out there, but it's so per, most personality, whether it's like people that have personality disorders, right? When it lets your personality is is extreme in some way, or just kind of general personality, it is typically a, a it's comprised of a variety of features. If you want to almost think of it like even like a pie chart, you're gonna have different slices of different things, and that kind of makes up your personality. So there's not just like one; it's not rigid. There's all these different things that contribute to it. And so constellation, I almost mean like it's very unique for people. Like you're gonna have different things that your openness, your agreeableness, your introversion versus extroversion, those are going to be different for everyone. So everyone has their own personality constellation in that capacity. Oh, is that your term? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a good one. Because I, I totally thought that that was just like uh, different psychologists would be standing around discussing it. Oh, no. I very, I try very frequently to use psychological jargon, one, because I can't remember it. Um, and two, because like, I, I think it's it can be useless. Like if I'm in therapy session, and I'm trying to explain a, a disorder to someone or how to get better, and I'm using jargon, like they're gonna look at me like, like, this is not helpful. Like, I explain it to me how I can take it up and use it in my life. Yeah. Getting back into the Rambo and kind of bringing in this aspect of connectedness and maybe peppering in a little bit of social media and the personality constellation and the and the de- the developing age of the person when they come in and start getting this identity is this connectedness just not allowing people to reach sort of exit velocity i i remember now i'm getting a little uh, long-winded as an interviewer but i i remember that when i was on an sf team we would have sort of like junior green braves come in and every sf team for each specialty has a senior and a junior, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So like a senior medic, a junior medic. But 
you would kind of show up and and you may even got this during the SF course too, but you would start to start to see like the common personality traits mm. and a lot of them are pretty overt and you start to like pick and choose from the people that you're around. And I guess some more tangible examples, it's like people who have a dip in because everyone else has a dip in people who have a Sparta tattoo because everyone else has a Sparta tattoo, but uh, I, I also people who start to like mimic personality traits and others. And it, the army can be very cohesive in that people get comfortable operating with each other, but then this makes it even more difficult to shed that and, and kind of take the next step and reach exit velocity. You made me think about a couple different things. So one, I think kind of the, the things that you were talking about is more related to the sense of belonging, this idea that we're all striving for that, right? Humans are pack creatures. We want to belong. And especially in things like SF teams, right? Belonging is imperative. Like you can't function if either one, you don't belong or there isn't a really kind of robust sense of, of unit cohesion. Now, obviously that, that doesn't always happen. There's always personality conflicts. So I'm talking more broadly. I don't necessarily mean kind of getting into the minutiae. But by and large, belonging is, is is critical, and being able to kind of adapt yourself to that the team or that that group or that personality or whatever it may be, I think is important. And so, I will be honest. I in the past, I have been. I would even just. I would call myself have been have been very judgmental about service members or veterans that kind of carried some of those those kind of behaviors or traits with them into to veteran life. And I, and I came from a good place. It came from this idea that like, there was a study that was done by Rich McNally. He's also a, a really famous psychologist out of Harvard. He did a study with Vietnam veterans looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the things he noticed, he was not examining this, but he noticed that this, the Vietnam veterans that had the worst PTSD, so more severe PTSD that lasted longer and had a greater impact on their life, they all wore regalia. So whether it was the Vietnam hats or shirts or things like that, it was this kind of almost outward emblematic expression of their service that seemed to correlate with those who had worse PTSD. And so I think initially my, my kind of like vilification of people like wearing these shirts or putting these stickers on the car or whatever was I think most some of it was the reaction of like, oh, I wonder if like, they're unable to kind of leave that self in the past and they're actually struggling more with transition. And I was probably just immature. So that's a piece of it too. But as you were talking to me, I was thinking about one of the first um, former Green Berets that I, I had in therapy, he had seen combat, not as much as he wanted to, which is a whole other piece we could talk about, which is, I think transition stress can also be related to this like frustrated hero's journey. You enter service expecting one kind of outcome or baptism by fire or being able to prove yourself. And then if you either don't get it or don't get it to the level that you anticipate, you can have psychological consequences there. But his biggest stressor wasn't combat, wasn't exposure to any of that. It was that he never felt like he was part of his team. And that he had this kind of like complete feeling of alienation from and everything he did and everything he tried to like make himself a valuable, like a, an asset, not a liability, right? A valued member of the team seemed to backfire on him no matter what he did. He like enrolled in private shooting courses to become the best shooter on the team. He like took more languages. Like he was just kind of doing all of these things to try to one, show his value Two, like, I think he was at the best like APFT score on the team, not that necessarily matters, but he like worked really hard in this physical fitness. But no matter what, he always felt like he was not a part of the team. And so what we were working on in therapy had nothing to do with, with trauma or PTSD, but it was this idea of like, I was never accepted. Like, was I ever really a Green Beret? And that piece of it, like that piece of identity or belonging was, was psychologically distressing, like in a way that was impacting his life. 
Yeah, you made me think of a story that uh, obviously would never name the guy, but we had a guy who had a little trouble integrating in a team. And we do a lot of shit talking, and you have to have a really thick skin to fit in. And he was a guy who would just lob you softballs. And me, as like early 20s, I would crush him, right? Well, not just me, but like other guys on the team were just going to crush him. I just remember one day he was kind of like getting it, clicking, fitting, fitting in. And, uh, you know, we'd done some shooting. We'd done like an obstacle course. We'd done like, or maybe like a wall climb or something like that. Kind of a little competitive event. And uh, he did pretty well. And, and someone, um, you know, might have been a team sergeant, one of the senior guys on the team was like, uh, hey, man, you did really well today. No one knew that you were that good of a climber. And he, go, he just goes, uh, Oh, well, yeah, I did gymnastics in high school. And I was oh. like, God, ah, uh, like, see, so he had it, man. Just suppress that. Not that being a gymnast is anything like, you know, right. I'm not judging that as 35 year old Matt, but as like 22 year old Matt all over it. It's in that culture, in that environment. Yeah. Um, not everyone fits. And, and some people have harder times and it's like ruthless and it takes us maturing to understand what like real inclusion is. Yeah. Right. And oftentimes, like if I could go back and talk to that guy that you were talking about <laughs> culturally, oftentimes it's not the person with the best skill. It's the person who's like adequate skill, you know, mid to high and is not, is not ever negligent or anything, but just like gets along as a member of the group. I don't know. It's, it's team dependent. Yeah. But that, that means your comment right there, it's team dependent. I think it's also something that like one is a whole area of, of interest to me, but also it goes back to unit cohesion, right? We know the most effective combat teams, whether it's a line unit, whether it's SF teams, whatever it may be, has high levels of unit cohesion. And what does that look like? And how do we begin create? Like, so these are also like some of my areas of interest. Like how do we begin creating that? What does that look like? Could that person have been integrated in a different way? But so often what people are experiencing, um, and this isn't to be like, you know, I, I'm kind of the first person to be like, I think that we ha- need to have like a, a more nuanced discussion around how we are integrating the discussion of feelings into the military. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think the way we're doing it now is not effective. And I think it's actually dangerous for our national security for a variety of different reasons. But that that exists, that we can have a discussion about about feelings and inclusion that isn't like, oh, you're touchy-feely. You're like, oh, and you're like Ivy League, Ivory Tower. Let's talk about that. We just want to put, you know, bombs on foreheads. Like there's a way to talk about feelings and how it impacts lethality and unit cohesion, which is related to combat outcome that I just don't think we're having effectively right now. This is another thing that we talk about on the podcast, but do you study non-military use cases or or focus on any specific allegories? Uh, On a few episodes, we've talked about pro sports because I think, again, the identity thing and the age group lends itself but uh, are you spending some time either relating your findings to other populations or studying other populations to uh, enrich your findings? So I haven't yet, but like just kind of anecdotally, you're absolutely right. So so sports athletes are people that are in kind of those high impact professions, whether it is, again, sports, um, even some other ones that you may not think of, like even like Silicon Valley professionals who like peak really early, similar in some ways to the transition or leaving. Um, but there's even there's a great veteran service organization, though I'm totally blanking on the name right now, uh, that pairs former professional athletes with veterans. Um, and it may be Merging vets and players? 
Yes. That was such an easy name. How could I not remember that? We had um, MVP. MVP. We had Nate yeah. on uh, oh, yeah, a few there you go. Ago. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same experience, right? Like, And some of this goes back to you. So somebody once told me that um, PTSD is the recognition you'll never be that cool again. And it's like, did they peak too early in life? Or did I have these experiences in life that are just, you know, so intense or so uh, profound that I'll never find that again, that I, that my twenties were the best years of my life. And that's that, like there's, there's, there's no more future. The future that I am going to have just is never going to be able to compare. And I think athletes can relate to that. Yeah. I mean, I used a lot of the wording that you just said in my, like, uh, you know, going away dinner. I was like, yeah, you know, Hey guys, I know I'll never be as cool as this, but I'm going to go try to do something else. Sort of said it like practically, but it is the kind of thing that you think about when you're driving in a car alone or, or, you know, sitting there before bed. This is Matt again with some more info on how you can support the show. First, make sure that if you're listening to us, you're also subscribed to the show on whatever your podcast player of choice is. This way, you're going to see our newest episodes as soon as they come out every other Tuesday. Second, go ahead and tell someone you know about the show, since word-of-mouth advertising is the best. We also have a cool new t-shirt design if you want to uh, wear the show. You can shop by clicking on the merchandise link on our website at thankyounowwhat.com. I've also been told that the hoodies are extra comfortable for this time of year, so you can go check those out, too. Go to thankyounowwhat.com, click Merchandise. It'll redirect you to Cotton Bureau, and you can shop Show Swag. If you want to engage with us more, we would encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThankYouNowWhat. You can also visit our website for more information about the show itself or use a contact form to get in touch with us. If you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, you can head over to the website to see our PayPal and Patreon links. PayPal is a pretty straightforward contribution, whereas Patreon, you can subscribe to get even more content by contributing a very small amount for each episode. Go click the links and check them out. Please know that your contributions will go straight to helping us keep the lights on and never into our pockets. Last year, we also managed to redirect about half of your contributions to those nonprofits that support or honor veterans. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. Do you want to talk a bit switching back to the personal narrative in your own transition. So there's a few, there's a few things like you start going to school, you have a family, uh, your husband is still serving. I know that you said George Washington is a little more flexible with the schedule. When you get to Columbia, are you moving to New York? How does that work with your, your husband's duty station, parenting, like co-parenting? How does all this stuff start to shake out? Um, one day at a time is typically how it is. But so he gets back from Afghanistan. I go back to, to Bragg for six months. We PCS. So he applied to teach at West Point as a professor to go back to teach history. So he did his master's at UPenn during my first two years. I was at Columbia. So we lived in Jersey halfway between, but I was commuting almost round trip five hours a day to like get there every day. It was an awful two years. I can barely Jesus. remember them. And then he was commuting a couple of days a week down to Penn, about an hour and a half three hours round trip for him. And so we were doing that. Our girls were oh gosh, three and two, almost three and two at the time. And again, I was like, it was a foggy time. We were very lucky to be on this amazing school over in Pennsylvania. So we were in Jersey, 
bringing the girls to Pennsylvania. My husband was getting on one train south. I was getting on a train north. But it was kind of all in this idea that like these are these are the tough years. On the back end, there's going to be it's going to be easier. And then when we were at West Point for two years, I was just driving down to Columbia every day. So that that was much easier. But again, it's like been one every you know every day at a time. I've been very lucky. My husband's been very supportive of all my aspirations and goals, and we've just been able to try to piecemeal it together. I've also kind of made a habit of being kind of brutally and radically honest with any of my bosses or my professors, and just saying like, my family is this, this is this, and here's where I'm willing to always give, but I, I have to have you meet me somewhere in between. And just being really on. I think, unfortunately, for better or for worse, a lot of women don't have those conversations or don't feel comfortable having them. And that's some of that goes back to, I think, oftentimes we, we undervalue ourselves or question our worth. But saying like, I have something to offer and bring to the table and I'm willing to bring it all to this point. And then I, I just kind of need you to meet me, meet me here. But by being upfront about it and not hiding it or not trying to kind of suppress all of that has helped us be be successful in managing all the different things we're doing. Do you think the meet me halfway thing among women is from... Uh, I'm going to just put myself in a body bag during this exchange, but uh, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the apprehension on the meet me halfway thing with women is that from like this thought from the employer's point of view, where if I'm employing a woman at some point, she's either going to leave or take a break for family. Or is it that like women are still making progress in the workplace and, you know, we're still striving towards parity and that you kind of want to toe the line and not put that at risk? What is it? I should have I just asked you what it was instead of put all my own stuff on the table and asked no, you to but, respond. But you, but you did great because I think it's all of that. I think it's all of that. I think there's still some idea that we're kind of searching for parity. I think there's still this fear that we will be undervalued because if we do have to take a break for having a child, that that may impact our progress. Like, you know, if you're in a, a whatever profession, whether it's law, whether it's medicine, whether it's consulting, whether it's any of that, the, the fear is that if I'm somehow gone, I'm not going to progress or people are going to take my spot because what do we do with space that isn't filled? We fill it. So, and, and I mean that from an employer's perspective, I and mean, we also see even in the military, right, that we see like pregnant soldiers or pregnant officers or whatever um, as not being able to fully contribute to the mission. So at least for me, some of that was like kind of like a radical carryover, like I have to change this mindset or, or feeling about this. So I think it's some of that. And I think it's also, it, it does go back to even some, how we socialize women, unfortunately, in our country about feelings of worth and how much kind of space we're willing to take up or attention drawn to ourselves. Like, are we going to be the problem woman? Are we going to create issues for ourselves in the workplace? I, I told a story at a uh, transitioning workshop that Commit, which is another incredible veteran service organization that focuses on transition. I was at their workshop. I was leading a course. And I shared the story. I was at Harris Teeter, which is a grocery store chain in Northern Virginia. I I don't know where they else are. That's just where I know that they exist. And they have spot, parking spots for veterans. It says like veteran only parking. And I was in a, and, I, and by the way, I never park in those spots. I never parked in the pregnancy spots at hospitals when I was pregnant. Um, I was a person that like wore their boots when I was pregnant in uniform until the bitter end. Like I was like, you know, would spend 15 minutes trying to get my boots on because I was like, I will never wear tennis shoes. Like I was trying to do everything possible to not draw attention to myself or not like somehow act that I deserve something special because I was either pregnant, which is what humans female species is meant to do or somehow like use my service as a way to get a parking spot. Like I had this like kind of moral tilt against it, but I was super late. It was like, I think, I don't know if it was raining, but like there was no parking spots and one of them was open and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to whip my car in there and get out. 
And I did. And as I'm getting out, I'm closing the door and I'm walking around the back of my car. A truck pulls up and a guy leans out and he's like, hey, you know, those are for veterans, right? And then speeds off. And like in my memory, the time is a lot slower, but by the time he yells it and was there a time for me to say anything? But I just remember like standing there dumbstruck, like like the first time when I like parking these spots. And then somebody to have the kind of temerity to say that and to kind of link that back to what you're saying about women is I think oftentimes we worry about those things probably more. That may not have been even a thought for for a male veteran. I don't know. I don't want to speak for the entire male veteran species or group. I shouldn't call them a species group. But for me, that was. And so... Kind of seemed like a species. (laughs) (laughs) So just kind of getting past that point and finding like ways to almost be shameless about about those things. Because there is no shame in it. There's no shame in being a mother or a woman veteran or having obligations to your families. But we have somehow internalized this idea that there is something like shameful or less productive about it. I think that after the pandemic, while well, I'm hoping people catch on and start to, since they've asked us all to integrate work life even more deeply than we had thought before, I'm hoping that uh, people start to understand and learn and catch on. It, it makes me think of, because even if you're not a woman, just a veteran, you don't really want to take time off ever or not be like always available and always productive. So you know, you still don't even want to have those conversations like, uh, let's discuss some time that I would like to protect for either mm-hmm. another commitment or family or even health if you have lasting issues, that kind of thing. And I also thought about to share another story when I was an infantry, like a private, you know, infantry private or something. I was in like the uh, the platoon office or the platoon locker room one morning. And one of the guys who lived off post calls and I picked it up and it, and it was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm sick. I'm not going to make it in today. And I was like, huh? I, I, I actually didn't know what he meant. And I was like, no, no, no. If you're sick, like, even if, even if someone just brings your body on post, <laughs> we will right. send you to sick call, but like, you'll be here. You don't not show up to work. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that, that culture carries, right? Cause that, that's, I mean, we, we think about that all the time. And so, and again, like we, I think we, it's a very human worry to have. If I vacate space, something's going to fill it in the aftermath. And so whether that is in the military, whether it's male, female, anything, I think there is a kind of a natural inclination to be like, I don't want to give people the opportunity to take what I feel like is mine or what I've earned because you worked for it. At this point in your transition, do you see anything that you wish you could have done better? I mean, we all do, but like tangibly as like a takeaway. You know, I wish, I I wish even as I, you know, I'm saying like, oh, I I worked really hard to balance. Those first two years were really, really tough. Like just the other day I was telling my, my husband, my, my eight-year-old loves TV. Like I should be mortified by how much she loves TV. Like loves it. And I'm a huge reader. Like I, I read everything. I love fantasy novels, science fiction, romance, historical novels. Like I love, I grew up loving reading and so like the idea of like loving tv is like kind of an act i don't understand it necessarily um and so i was reflecting on this parenting moment the other day because my daughter was like can i watch tv and i like thought like it was like no you can't watch tv like watch too much tv and then i tried to really like one be like "Eh, poor parenting um and try to then also begin to understand where this need comes from and those first two years that i was we were living in jersey my husband was going to pennsylvania i was going to west i was going to columbia 
I was getting up at like, man, four o'clock in the morning because I had to make like the first train around five or 5.30 in order to, to get to Columbia on time for my classes. And my daughter at the time was young. She was like three and she would hear me wake up. So four o'clock in the morning, she would hear me wake up and she would come out of her room and gosh, I can still remember like this mental image. Like she's in this like princess pink um, nightgown. She has her, her hair in these like lopsided pigtails and she's just crying. She's sobbing and she's like, you leave before I get up in the morning, mommy. Like, why are you leaving? And it was like, that was like all the time that there was moments like that, that, you know, it was very hard for her to recognize, like, why are you leaving me? Why aren't you there? And even now, five years later, um, sometimes before, I, you know, she, I tuck her in every night still, you know, she'll say, oh, will you be here in the morning? And one of the things I did at that time to try to like, not feel guilty or shame was I'd be like, oh, I'll put on your favorite TV show. Cause you know, I, I wanted her like, cause she wouldn't go back to sleep. She would just kind of cry. And so, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I'll put on like, I can't even remember my Paw Patrol or something like that. And so she used that as a way of coping with her sadness. And so now it makes sense when she's trying to cope with like boredom or sadness or emotion, she often turns to TV as a way of filling that space. And so that's a super long way to answer your question. Well, one of the things I wish I had changed is if I had found a better way of handling those situations, um, because that, that, that transition from being a stay-at-home mom to going back full-time at school, because I was able to kind of balance pretty effectively my master's, but PhD, you can't do the same thing. I, I have a lot of wishes I could change the way I did that. Well, if she ever wants to get into creating TV and movies, we'll uh, hook her up with Ben. He'll... <laughs> Ben, do you have any do you have any um, eight seven or eight year old mentees uh, right now? I'm sure uh, the office is looking for new interns. By the way, there's nothing wrong with TV, and there's nothing wrong with TV. TV can be a wonderful vehicle. I don't like know why I have this weird thing about it. I think it's because I love it anyway. Yeah. So, in a PhD program. At some point, do you start blending it into working to kind of looking mm-hmm. like a job to then taking it to completion? Because I know right now uh, you work as a counselor. I don't know if that's the most accurate term, but can you talk about how the Ph.D. program goes from like maybe a course study to then writing to then working to completion? How does that timeline look? So just, I can just speak to PhD programs, PsyD programs, which are a doctor of psychology, look a little bit different because they, they don't really have as robust of a research component. So they're kind of, they dump two feet into clinical work a little bit earlier. Uh, we don't typically begin doing clinical work until our, our second semester, first year. So it's still pretty quick, but you are kind of doing classes alongside clinical work through your first two years. And you let clinical work is either at a local clinic or a community outpatient mental clinic, mental health clinic. And then in your third and fourth year, you do what's called externship, which is where then you apply. Um, and for in the, the New York tri-state area, you actually have to go through a match process where you're applying to sites, they're applying to you, and then you have to get like algorithmically matched for these programs because they're just so competitive. So third and fourth year, you are applying for externships and typically it's to gain inpatient experience. So kind of exposure to more uh, severe psychiatric illnesses or to work with an integrated team. So alongside social workers, psychiatrists, nutritionists, dietitians, and then in your fifth or sixth year, and by the way, throughout all of that, you're doing research. So classes, clinical work and research all become embedded or enmeshed starting second semester, first year. And then in your fifth or sixth year, as you're kind of defending or writing your dissertation, you apply for a match again for what we call internship. 
it's almost easier to think of it almost like a, a residency, which is like, I know we'll offend a lot of people that do med residencies, cause, but it's just the idea of it's a very intensive where you're just doing that. And so you apply, typically people apply to counseling centers or hospitals or VAs, and then you're working a full-time job, even though you're still a doctoral student, you're doing basically 40 hours a week as a, as a clinician um, in any of those settings while also doing your, your research. If you're in the clinical setting, do you bring up your own experience when you're working with people or you, do you try to keep it focused on them or, or are you allowed to bring in your own experience? And, and I guess to kind of load up that question, do you get more clout with people that come in and sit with you because you served? Yeah. So there's actually, it's a really actually interesting and nuanced question that maybe I don't think you probably realized you were asking. So there's actually different areas of psychology or different um, schools of thought. So there is what you would call psychodynamic, which kind of was born out of psychoanalytic theory. So psychodynamic theory is what you traditionally think of when you think of someone like laying on the couch and talking about their feelings or their experience um, that's focused on childhood, attachment, things like that. That's psychodynamic. And in that kind of philosophy or school of thought, you do not, you never self-disclose. So you never provide any information about yourself. The expectation is a therapist is almost a blank slate. And the purpose and the reason why is because you're kind of reflecting back the relationships that the person has had with other people. So then you can comment on them. And then you can't necessarily effectively do that if you're kind of bringing your own stuff to the table is, is the theory behind it or the thought behind it. But kind of in, there was kind of a revolution in psychology, which is like, we can't codify or measure any of these things. There's no real quote unquote true empiricism around psychodynamic theory. That's also debatable, by the way. That's just like a whole other topic. Um, and so born out of that was cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy is what kind of is now what we call an evidence-based therapy, which is that there is empirical evidence to suggest that these modalities of therapy work. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is an EBT, an evidence-based therapy, and there's a variety of those. And within those therapies, again, this is not the question you asked, but it's kind of a long-winded way. You don't self, you or you, I'm sorry, you can self-disclose in those. And it's considered more kind of human-based, where you can bring those things to the table as a way of creating rapport or an alliance in a therapeutic relationship. So I, it depends the, the kind of, again, a long way around that barn is it depends on the situation. If I disclose or not, actually more often than not, I'm likely to disclose that I'm either a mom, um, than I am almost anything else, especially when I have whether it, women in therapy that are struggling with kind of dual roles or parenting or th things like that. And some of it is kind of what you said before, like one, if you've met one veteran, you've met one veteran, every veteran has very different experiences me saying a veteran, if I'm ever disclosing it, it's usually when I find the person that's either kind of recounting their trauma narrative, which is in therapy in general, trying to explain every acronym. And it's me more like kind of pumping the brakes and being like, you know, you don't need to interrupt yourself. You don't need to do that. I understand if I have any questions, I'll ask. So that's kind of when I disclose my veteran status is more around trying to make sure they know they don't have to over explain everything and to make it a little bit easier, like less burdensome in their, in their narratives. And then, uh, so the military is still majority male, do other veterans or service members, do they typically want to open up to if they're a guy, another guy, or does it matter? This is just stuff I'm like yeah. personally curious about, mm -hmm. uh, not to like make a gender based discussion topic. I think, again, it depends, right? It depends on the person. I think there are a lot of male veterans that feel more uh, comfortable opening up to women because I think women are still more seen as nurturing. I also think sometimes there's the fear of uh, either judgment from another male, like I'm not manly enough, I'm not stoic enough, or if it's another veteran, like, you know, the judgment of like, did, like, 
where it is like we, we, we unfortunately stratify service or combat exposure in a way that I think is often can be unhealthy. So it's like the stratification of like, did I see more than you or did they do more than I did? Are they going to think I'm, you know, being yeah. weak? So um, I think it depends. Now we'll tell you some of the best clinicians I have ever met are often social workers and they cut across the grain of, of male, female, but they are all veterans and have had some level of combat experience. And they are the best at explaining all of these things we've talked about in layman's terms to allowing people to begin to understand either the kind of the background, the psychoeducation around what they're experiencing or how to utilize the therapy in their everyday lives. Yeah, that's another thing that maybe I should have thought of, but uh, didn't in the question was the stratification. It's a lot of you know, butt sniffing that yeah. goes on. And it's like, I'm sitting across from someone, have they seen like some incredible shit go down and I'm telling them about something that's, that's not on their level? Or can they even relate to me because they haven't seen the shit that I have? When you first sit down and establish like a working relationship with someone that you know you're going to have multiple visits with, is that some stuff that you just have to like, hey, let's get this out of the way. Let's like establish some ground rules or, or do you prioritize anything like that in like a first session? So, oh gosh, I feel like bad being like, it depends. I feel like I'm like, sound like a politician because uh, I'm giving you non-answers to some of your questions. Um, well, people who are more informed about the topic they're discussing are more likely to say it depends. There's, <laughs> ben, there's, a, there's a great VBW episode mm-hmm. on, on uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect that explains this. But when you say it depends, it just lets me know that you are actually smart about it. <laughs> well, I'll take that too. Um, it, but it does, it really, because it, it depends on one, the type of treatment you're doing. And so I will say kind of the, the experience you're talking about, about like, you know, yes, the butt sniffing, but also this kind of stratification of service in a strange way, I think impacts a lot of people's willingness to do group therapy. So a lot of veterans I know like won't do it because they don't, they're, they're kind of either fearful of that judgment or it's more from like almost this like kind of bizarre, and I say this in a, a, a trying to be in like a loving way, bizarrely altruistic. Like I don't want to take up a spot. I didn't see as much as the next person. I mm-hmm. was a limb, or I didn't experience this, and so I, I don't just des- almost like I don't deserve a seat at the table or a seat at the group. So there, there was certainly a lot of that. Now, if you are doing a trauma focused therapy, so the cognitive processing therapy or prolonged exposure which are, again, evidence-based treatment. Their sole purpose is to treat the trauma exposure, to treat the trauma reaction like PTSD. That trauma narrative, so whatever kind of exposure it is or whatever traumatic event, if it's in combat, that's front and center. So you are kind of session, actually it's session two that you begin talking about it, but that's the whole thrust of the therapy. So you're going to be talking about those. And again, some of the best clinicians I know who are combat veterans themselves will find ways to integrate it to show that, like, one, I know what you're talking about, and two, like just from a cultural perspective, I can kind of see what you're saying. And I'm going to help you begin to poke holes in that worldview because cognitive processing therapy is beginning to target those maladaptive cognitions. So those thoughts or beliefs that can emerge after a traumatic event. Like, for example, you're on a mountainside in Afghanistan. A guy can't get the machine gun up fast enough and his, you know, his best friend dies. And his narrative becomes, if I had just got that machine gun up faster, he wouldn't have died. It's all my fault. And then they begin to kind of integrate that, that belief or that they become very rigid around that idea. And so cognitive processing therapy is beginning to poke holes in that. Like, is that really true? If you got the machine gun up, is it possible he could have died anyways? You know, what maybe led to the fact that you couldn't get the machine gun up fast enough? What does fast enough even mean? How do you define that? Beginning to kind of create or interject like, nuance into some of these kind of what have become very rigid thought patterns. I think you should do your own podcast <laughs> where we where we structure, not, not saying that, you know, you, you live in the world of 30-hour days. 
you have 24 just like the rest of us but uh we, if if there was a way to like structure out the 20 hour version of this conversation with probably someone more qualified than me i think that would be an incredible open resource have you thought, thought about, about that? I've, I've yeah. thought about it. And some of it is it is time-based. But I actually think, by the way, it's, it's better to have someone that's not an expert. Two experts become experts, and they're not actually covering the content that needs to be covered, or they're not asking the questions that should be asked, which is, what is the experience like in the room for someone who doesn't have expertise in this arena? Because otherwise, you're like, it's like a I was using the phrase circle jerk, which is also not appropriate. Um, but that's ultimately what it becomes. Is like, you guys, it's like... Um, academic masturbation like nothing comes mm. of it so mm. uh, i think it's good when you have someone that's saying like I, d- I don't understand this or why does this matter or what is the purpose of this so yes i, okay. I would think yeah I, I think that's it's a really i would love to do because i get these questions all the time and i like if there was a way i could like answer them all at once and then like put them out in the world but i'm i am so bad at technology like i just cannot even emphasize that point enough and i i that's really where it comes to i'm like i'm gonna do it and i'm like i don't where do I even start? <laughs> we had to, uh, we had to learn most things the hard way, the two of us, but I'm also, I'm in, in many contexts, I'm happy to be the uh, movie character that needs everything explained to them for the audience's <laughs> benefit. It's like, you're like really putting yourself down there. I feel like I me, mean, you're asking very thoughtful questions about things that have really complex answers that take a long time to I- explain or understand. Um, and I think most people have the questions that you're asking, especially when it comes to, psychology which often is like this weird thing where it's like the wizard of oz like don't look behind the curtain but like that's actually what's imperative is that we pull back the curtain and we're like it's not rocket science i'm gonna tell you exactly what to do and i want to teach you to be your own best therapist because i don't want to see you for 14 years and if i did that would be unethical like then you're not getting any better like you wouldn't keep someone in chemo for 14 years if it wasn't getting better you try a new treatment like it's just Mm. yeah I saw an article, one of your articles, and they quoted you as saying that uh, you could go into the military and regardless of what happened, still come out as yourself. Yes. So I, I and I think I, I am now, okay, this is like triggering a little bit of memory. I think what I really mean about that is this idea that we've kind of built. So in some ways, I, I do think it's imperative that the military experience parallels the hero's journey. So this idea that you are kind of going in, you're facing something that feels like you have to overcome it. You do overcome it, where you face this challenge, you come out the other side and you come out different. And so, and by different, I don't necessarily mean your personality has changed. I actually mean more around your belief system or even your thoughts about your capability in the world. So I think that you can absolutely retain your sense of self. So you can go into the military, experience all of these things, kind of come out intact, which is I think more what I meant or that idea that like you don't lose part of yourself. It can actually enhance lots of parts of yourselves in the military. And you can still kind of keep that core sense of self as you progress through. But I would actually argue with my former self, I would push back the point, which is that then if that's the case, was the hero's journey fully effective? Was what we were supposed to be doing, right? Which is recruiting men and women into these the military, which the purpose is to fight and win our nation's wars, but it's also to give them a purpose, right? Because in time of peace, in time of garrison, there has to be something they're striving for. And if it's not the next war, it has to be the next challenge. It has to be something else. And if we aren't doing that, if we aren't pushing those men and women to change and meet that challenge and not see it as a threat, by the way, but appraise it as a challenge, something they can rise and meet the demand of, then we're failing. Like we're failing as an institution and we're particularly failing as a military. So do I think that you can retain your sense of self, kind of go in and see all these maybe potentially terrible things and emerges yourself in terms of like your core values, your belief system? Yes, absolutely. 
And the flip side of that is if you aren't changing in some way, then we've, we've failed. So again, that's almost like a non-answer because it's both. I think it's, it's a dialectic. You can be yourself while also finding change in the process. So that leads me into our show question, which may be sort of a flip side of that is who are you today if you never served? Gosh, oh, that is like a punch to the gut. Because if I think about it, I wouldn't have any of the things I had right now if I didn't serve because I got the position where I did at Columbia by virtue of the fact that I I had served and because I went to West Point and someone was like a fellow West Pointer, I want to make sure that her application is at least seen. I I wouldn't have made it. Um, And I would hope that with the foundation my parents gave me around service. And I think this is the other really critical idea that, gosh, we just don't have, we don't have time to kind of delve into, is that we have begun to look at the military's cornering the market on service to our nation. That you can only serve our nation in uniform and that's what service is and everything else kind of be damned. And I, I'm the firm believer, and I think most people are if they really get pushed or think about is service looks like many things. Our teachers do a service, right? Whether you even work at a grocery store, a gas station, almost everybody is serving in some capacity and we have to begin reconceptualizing what service looks like. And my parents really focused on service. At the idea of like, are you making America, our country, people better than you left them. And so I would hope that if I didn't serve, that I'd still found some way to give back, to keep asking myself that question. Am I giving back to America, a place that I feel like just, I I, I still, I could cry during the national anthem. Like I couldn't feel more, even with everything going on, I couldn't feel more in love with America and this idea that we are this kind of still rising sun in the world and that we bring so much to bear and like all the achievements that we we've done and, and what we bring with the terms of freedom and how we conceptualize that. And I would hope that I found a way there. I found a way here, maybe not here, here with psychology, but that I found a way that I'm like, ah, I'm doing something. I'm, I'm giving back to America and I'm helping Americans in a way that feels purposeful and meaningful. That's one of the most transformative ideas that got into my head personally after transition is that I had this idea of G.I. Joe, there's one true way to serve. And it's circular reasoning because if there's a if there's a reason to go to war to protect the country, then there's gotta be something else that the country's good for and worth protecting. And like at the same time, again the dialectic is that we have to have our 18-year-old men and women believe it, right? That there is nothing greater or better than serving in uniform. Because otherwise how do you field an all-volunteer force? And so it is like, how do we balance that from a national consciousness perspective of we have to make sure we're showing there are other forms of service and saying that like this service, like this particular one, there is something, something there, something special, unique and powerful. And you can't get that anywhere else. Okay. Well, I, we're over time. I'm going to go find a teacher to thank. No, don't, don't apologize to us. (laughs) We, We would like, we would keep people on for five hours like Joe Rogan if we could. Aren't people so interesting? Like, People are amazing. Oh, I love stories. People are great. I honestly, like, I would sit and think, how can Joe Rogan do like a three, four hour podcast? But he has on the most interesting people in society. And it's like now, Ben, we have on the most interesting people from our cross section of society. And it's like we started at 90 minutes. We're like, oh, we're always going over. Let's set the clock at two hours. (laughs) It's like we would just keep talking. 
by the way, that's a testament to both of you, right? I imagine people that were less skilled or less comfortable or less capable, people wouldn't be able to have 90 minute to two hour conversations. It would be stilted and that it wouldn't happen. So I think that also may be the magic in your formula. Well, if you listen to our whole catalog, maybe you'll see a little bit of uh, skill progression. <laughs> we all I, went, I went back and listened to an old episode of like, oh, God. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Megan continuing her path of service while improving the lives of her fellow veterans. You can also be on the lookout for us trying to get her back on the show again. As always, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.